Hey everybody, welcome on back to the Making Permaculture Stronger podcast, which goes hand in hand with the blog project at makingpermaculturestronger.net. Today I enjoy my fourth conversation with who I'm confident is my all-time most listened to guest, as in the combined episodes of the conversations I've had with Carol Sanford, uh, have been listened to more than any others, and have been a huge source of ongoing inspiration, not only for myself, but I know for many of you. Carol has just released a brand new book, like we're talking, it's happening now, like today, this week sort of thing, becoming available for the first time. Its title is Indirect Work. And Carol has described this incredible book, which I think is like a seventh or eighth book, um, as the key to all her other books and her approach in general. And if you don't know yet, then you're probably new to the show, because uh, I, I mention and draw on Carol's stuff a lot. I would describe Carol, who's now 80 years old, as this incredibly deep and profound agent of regeneration. To me, Carol is constantly resourcing herself and everyone she works with an authentic regeneration as a place that it's possible to be coming from, to be sourcing our ideas and beliefs and practices and conversations and interventions and, 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 and such like from. Um, a place that's not simply, a, I'll, I'll change my mind and do that. It requires a lot of hard work at the individual level, at the level of the dynamics of the, of the groups you're part of, at the level of the dynamics of how you're seeking to engage with the larger systems you, you're nested within and you care about. And... For Carol, core to all this is moving from a direct work approach or paradigm into what she calls an indirect uh, approach. And this is related very much to the, the work we've been doing, the explorations we've been making of the mechanical worldview. And I know you're going to get so much out of it. Now, I'm really excited to let you know that in conversation with Carol, Carol has kindly offered to give away some free stuff, including a copy of the book. So if you go to makingpermaculturestronger.net uh, and track down the, the show notes for the episode, Carol Sanford is, has been graced with um, her own category. So if you go to, uh, I think there's a category tab on the menu and you click Carol Sanford, you'll find the conversation. Um, if, if you're getting to this a little bit later, I guess I should come up with a date. Let's say... Let's say we'll call it by mm, Feb 20, February 20th, 2022. Uh, that's how long you got. And along with the book, there's a free ticket to a 90-minute question and answer session, live session with online with Carol uh, on May 2nd. There's also, you'll get access to a, a PDF, which is a self-assessment for regenerative integrity. So lots of great stuff um, to get your hands on these, to go in the drawer to do so. All you've got to do is share this episode. So whether you reshare it on social media, uh, whatever it is, or, or you've got a blog or a website and, and link back to it. And then give me, send me on the contact form at Making Permaculture Stronger or some other way you have of getting in touch with me. Evidence you've done so and that'll put you in the drawer. So you've got three weeks to, to get in to win. And aside from that, I'm, I'm just so grateful to have access to the, the power and potency and um, depth of Carol's thinking and how it's feeding to the larger project, which you can always find out more about at makingpermaculturestronger.net. Uh, there's currently a couple of online courses coming up, one on the topic of holistic decision making, another one on the very exciting to me topic of living design process. Also, given all the posts and episodes and other work I want to make time for in the coming months, now would be a really great time if you believe in this project, if you believe in what's happening here, the value of this work, to support. If it's a one-time donation, or you become a patron, or you join the Making Permaculture Stronger developmental community, you can find out more about that at makingpermaculturestronger.net slash support. Huge thanks in advance if you are in a position to financially support the project. And to follow up on Carol Sanford's work, you can go to carolsanford.com uh, and to follow up on the book specifically, carolsanford.com slash indirect dash work. Enjoy the conversation. Thanks for being part of this project and I look forward to hearing what you make of it. All right. Well, I am thrilled to be welcoming Carol Sanford back to the show for your fourth conversation. Welcome, Carol. Oh, so glad to be here, Dan. I love talking to you. 
Likewise, and a lot of listeners are familiar with you by now. Our previous conversations are among the, the enduring favorites. Most weeks I get someone mentioning one of our previous conversations, which is wonderful. And I want to introduce you in part in your own words in the book we're going to be exploring today as a lifelong rebel rouser. Right. And, <laughs> and also for me personally, after participating in one of your change agent development communities for a few years now, a, um, a profound resource educator in, in the realm of, I'd say, both talking the walk and walking the talk of what authentic regeneration means, which to me is incredibly powerful and, and, and needed work. So, and I love integrity. It's one of my favorite words. Uh, trying, well, not trying, that's a terrible word, but working on yourself to be an integrity means, and to be authentic, which was the word you used, means you have to be operating uh, with some sort of principles and premises that you're referencing all the time. And if you forget and drop out of that, you get trapped in the societal uh, constructs that we are uh, bound by and educated in and socialized to. And so that when you introduce me that way, it is what my aspiration is, is to live integrity with the principles of living systems, which are, I summarize in the word regeneration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, beautiful. What you shared, just shared brings to mind a, a recent, I had a wonderful recent conversation with someone who's aspiring to move into the work of supporting people on their permaculture journeys. And your influence came through me in our conversation where I, I had him get out a pen or pencil and start to note down premises, knowing how easily it is to fall into the old ruts when, you're, when you've got someone in front of you and they expect Absolutely. a master plan and they expect a mechanical process. It's so easy to say one thing and then not even realize we do another. Yep. Okay, well, we're here today to discuss your new book, Indirect Work. And wow, I've got to say, what a book. I've, I've been through the pre-release a few times now. And it's interesting for me, on the one hand, it, there's so much in there. There's so many frameworks. In a sense, I feel like relative to some of your other books, there's enough frameworks in this book for, say, 10 books. And at the same time, by using the, the story around the Chicago Bills and Phil Jackson, you, you managed to keep it accessible. Um, which to me was an achievement to include so much and yet be able to story it in a way that, oh yeah, this is how how it goes in real life. So um, our our purpose today, our intention is to dive in and give listeners a taste of what the book's all around and pull pull out some of the key themes, acknowledging that I was reflecting before we got on air today that uh, in our last conversation, we went through the seven principles of regeneration. And of right. course, we could barely do them justice in an hour. And that is one of many frameworks in this book. So we'll, 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 see, we'll see, see how we go and, and hopefully entice people to, to get themselves a copy and, and, and dive in more deeply. Let's start. It'd be lovely to hear in your own words, what do you mean by indirect work? What does it contrast with? What, what is indirect work for you? It's literally the difference between Newtonian classical physics and quantum science to go to indirect from direct. Um, in direct work, which is what we have been, we have all been taught our entire lives and the lives of our parents and their parents for about 400 years, we have been teaching the idea that the way things move have to be hit, have to be moved. Literally, you have to, uh, uh, if you want a ball to roll, something has to hit it and that it will stop unless you keep moving on it. Now think of what the implications are for how we raise children. If they don't move unless we move them, and if they stop, we have to keep moving them. And our companies, our customers, we become intensely directed. I mean, think about the words we use. We want to have an impact, right? In other words, we want to be the ones who move them. So Einstein described uh, the Newtonian physics as a billiard ball model of how the world works, which meant you have a a billiard table, pool, snooker, whatever you call it in your part of the world, and you have balls on it that you're in charge of impacting into a pocket you choose. And Einstein said, if we use that mind to try and get us out of the mess we're in, we will only have another set of uh, problems. We, We can't keep viewing that 400-year-old theory as accurate. It 
works only in the very physical science world and only under special conditions. So what Einstein and David Bohm and a bunch of other for Heisenberg were saying is that's not how it works. If you move one thing over here with the intention of affecting that, what's really happening is it goes where it wants to go. It goes where the system is moving. It is all uh, impossible for us to direct. And in fact, the biggest, uh, most likely outcome is we do one thing and something else happened. I mean, when we're doing it with kids, we say reverse psychology. And what we mean is I have to do something different in order to try and get them to do that because I can't make them do it directly. And yet we keep trying to do it. We raise our kids, giving them incentives, rewards, punishment, uh, constant descriptions of what is right, what is wrong. We'd say, good boy, good girl, all that's billiard ball. What's amazing is we now know, and I know from some of my research when I was in graduate school, that every time you give recognition for one thing, you're creating tons of side effects. So let me give an example of what that means. When we do the employee of the month, uh, well, let's start with employee of the year, which is how it started out. You get a lot of people knowing that the way that person got done, what they did is they covered for them. Or they did part of the work in a group of people. And even when that person stands up there and says, well, I don't deserve this, all these people help. They're not named there. And it tends to have people feel less. And if so people did things like, well, let's do monthly. But continually what happens is people can see the lie and trying to recognize one out of a system at work. And it has an effect of diminishing their own sense of worth, importance, contribution. There's no way to see that. So a hundred years ago, about Einstein and a bunch of folks came up with a description and a name for what it meant to work indirectly because that's the way things actually happen. They're not Newtonian, that, that's a lie. And we are all acting as though it's true right now. So if we know that what we're creating is done indirectly, can you work indirectly with intention and then be able to uh, activate something greater? Well, it turns out you can't, but you don't ever predetermine the outcome you build. So here's what the new paradigm is. You build the capacity of the system to guide itself. So in the case for a child, which we talked about earlier, you don't say good boy, bad boy, good girl, gold stars. Uh, um, you instead give them the capacity to see for themselves. So you raise your children by teaching them to reflect not you affirm them, but be able to say, how do you feel about what you just did? Would you do that differently next time? And in no form of feedback, I give you the piece of research where I figured that out with feedback and why feedback dispersed energy and degenerated it rather than teaching children uh, to be able to observe against principles, against premises, and then make judgments. They got better and better and they got to be big thinkers and they learned how to do that with others to build capability. So indirect work has three processes which you work on helping build. The first is capability. The second is culture. You have to have a context infrastructure where people can be self-guided, self-developing, and consciousness, which is the capacity to see ourselves and see our effects in the world so that we can become more mindful. That's like upside down from what the direct work is of the billiard ball table. So what else you got to call it? Einstein calls it indirect, no, it's David Bohm, calls it indirect effects. And so I said, the work we want to learn to do is indirect. And this book is really a description of what underlies all the 45 years of work I've been doing in business 
that's produced amazing results, which people often say to me, I can't even hardly believe what happened in South Africa or in Europe or Greece or where mostly outside the US. The States has too much arrogance, but there is some in the US. So we all need to learn to do the quantum view, follow Einstein and um, overcoming his caveat about using the old paradigm and get with it, but learn how to do indirect work. Thank you. Yeah, I wanted to make that point that in the preface to the book, you, you say this book is a key to your other books and your other writings. I wanted to spend a little longer on, on, on what it is. There's, so I'll read out a line from the book itself. If you say that indirect work is building the capacity in people to consistently think at higher levels in order to create innovations for advancing specific contexts and streams of activity. And then I love this next sentence. This capacity allows us to become instruments for the regeneration and evolution of the living systems within which we are nested to become effective change agents. A couple of things that came up too. I wanted to mention that this interesting, what would you call it, correspondence or alignment with the quantum perspective and indigenous um, perspective, right. right? Which is probably kind of maybe counterintuitive for some people, <laughs> which we've, talk, we've talked about that in the last in the last conversation as well. Now, I want to share, applying this to a design context, it became so clear as you were talking, one of the practices I'm looking at disrupting and shifting in myself and people I work with in, in permaculture design is the idea of an upfront master plan. And as you were talking, to me, that's an example of direct work. And then you yeah. even use the words, when you predetermine the outcome, as opposed to building the capacity for, of the system or the, the people in the, in the place to um, be self-determining. And to me, this is a paradigm level shift within not just permaculture, but all the design right. disciplines. Well, even, excuse me, of the quote, regenerative movement, the regenerative movement, uh, and I think movements are always dangerous because they always mean people have set a target, are going to shoot every... Uh, you know, they're going to be the cue stick for the ball into the pocket. They're defining new doings. And that's always a, a warning sign. If we're going to do something, like have a mission or a purpose or a vision, and then we're going to take action and have best practices, you can hear it in my language. It's very Newtonian, very direct. And if we really want a planet that works, we have to let the planet work itself. If we want a society that works, we have to teach everybody, and also an ecosystem, how everything plays its role, including humans have a role. We're not in charge. We are not supposed to figure out where the pockets are. Uh, most of us don't speak earth language, so we can't read, listen, hear, experience, and that in theory, part of what permaculture was trying to teach people to do. But even in permaculture, you know, everybody says, well, you got to have a certain kind of swales, and I've forgotten all the terms for it. When you see this, you do that. When you see this, you do that. We've got a manual, right, that says we as a human know the rules, and so we do something. So, yes, the, the real challenge is... Actually, I'm not even sure what the real challenge is. The, the, but one of the tricks for finding where we're getting in trouble is to listen to how much our language is driven by uh, the Nike idea of just do it as though we know what the answer is. Did I even speak to what you were hoping I got on my own thing there for a minute? Yeah, that was, that was connected to me for sure. Okay. Um, and brings in the... An important flavor in the book too, which is that idea, yeah, like exactly what you say, as soon as you, it's about, oh, we just need to change what we do. We need to tweak our practices. Right. That itself right. is the work, is, is the direct uh, world of direct work, right. as, as opposed to how do we evolve our capability, consciousness and culture, um, which is which is a deeper, a deeper thing. Yeah, it takes a different kind of skill completely and a different way of seeing the world. Yeah. A really massive theme I'd really love to jump into because I'm sure if, if this was if I was new to all this stuff and I was listening to this podcast right now, I'd, I'd be like, yep, yep, that makes sense. <laughs> yep, like I can see how a lot of people are stuck in this direct work <laughs> paradigm. And yet the penny is continuing to drop for me just how deep and pervasive th this, this sort of attachment to direct work is. And that's so often, I mean, how incredibly rare it is to for someone to get out of that 
and stay out of it so that it certainly myself and probably most listeners and not all listeners uh, might not yet realize that, that there's something here for you and, and, and this is deep work that to me is in a sense multi-generational and at the very least something you can work on for your entire yeah. life let me give you an example in another arena that rarely gets talked about because it's such a hot subject, which is racism um, and how systemic and structural it is. On Wednesday, I ran a summit um, on what are the underpinnings of it and how, how do we come to work on it? What do we mean for indirect? And I used our um, experience in South Africa I was uh, asked by the Greek uh, new general manager for Africa, Colgate, to come uh, and help him figure out what to do with the Boxford factory there because uh, Mandela had been out of Robben Island for a year, was clearly about to be president, uh, and he's asked me to come be there and do this work. And so when I got there, the first thing he said was, so... I know you're going to tell me we can't work on racism directly, right? I said, right. We're never going to mention it. We're never, ever going to talk about diversity, inclusion. Instead, we're going to redesign systems so it's impossible for it to happen. We're going to change a culture so it can't even show up. Because if we work on it directly, we will make it worse. And the outcome was, just to jump over to uh, the effects that the indirect work had. And we can even describe a little of what we did there. The outcome was we were the only business of any size or scale which had no violence during in that uh, four and a half years we worked from 92 to half, uh, yeah, 92 through end of 96. We had no violence. This is eight tribes who are at war. They, are, they each separately are at war with the Afrikaners who are part of the colonizing process there and the English who are at war with one another over land, over control of businesses. People are blowing up taxis, uh, they called them. They were vans getting people to work. The townships were, people were at war with themselves. And we had this factory affecting 3,000 people, including contractors and others, which we never talked about any of that. Instead, we built a system. Oh, also, we moved um, Black Africans to the top of the company in six months. The Constitution required five years for you to match this the executive level with the racial mix. In other words, you had, we then had about 1% Black Africans at the top and 97.5% uh, Black Africans. We had to flip that in five years, and we did it in six months. Without losing one person, without demoting one person, we had one person leave is all. And we had the factory, which Colgate had basically sent Stadios there to close, I mean, we're going to give up on South Africa and lose 3,000 jobs. Stato says, nope, we're not going to do that. We didn't tell New York, but what we did is Stato set a compelling direction for uh, the kickoff. We didn't say the corporate direction, but it was we're going to build a great company while we build a great country. And that was big enough that it held everyone. And we set about monthly having an all day or many times two days education session on capability about how this business worked. For 100% of the people, everyone knew earnings margin and cash flow. Everyone knew how their mind worked. They knew how to observe their quality of mental energy. They knew when they were in two-term systems. They knew when they were following the lies. Like we questioned all the premises. This, this was a cultural change as well as capability and consciousness. The premise when we started was that race is real. You can't tell by a few biological tests, blood tests, somehow genetics that they can tell us exactly what races were. As we brought people in who said, there's no such thing. It's a social and political construct. That after it got over blowing people out of the water, they realized that the only common denominator was human. That was probably the first level at which you could define something. And even then there were 
you know, historical things that got us to that. When we got rid of that and said, we're going to base everything on the idea that we're going to do what's right for humans in this factory, and particularly building off the essence of each human. And that's what made it work. We had no, the, the ultimate diversity was every person essence came to life. And the ultimate inclusion was each person was in charge of their own work, their own growth, their own plan, their own capability in the context of a larger strategic direction. Being able to shift an organization around a subject like that in a time which everyone, there were bombs everywhere and to have this work, all because we had no direct work, none. All of it was indirect and it moved and moved. And in three months, we had grown the business 35%. No, on some businesses, up to 65% revenue per annum and had that steadily until I was gone. And then I had no way to track it. So it's good for business. It's good for every human. It's good for peace and tranquility. And it's a good we and we won't have time to go through all of what happened to the townships but we did indirect work there too and if you pulled it off there right for, for the listener who's like this sounds hard most of the context we're talking about don't have half of these challenges right exactly i mean racism is easy here if we would switch to indirect work it would i mean it'd still be hard but but that's because we have so much arrogance in South Africa, Black Africans had not been allowed to go to school in generations. And so that actually helped us. Uh, a lot of people said, oh, these people are going to be stupid, ignorant. We had lots of names, right? They've never been to school. Well, as Stavios often said, there's a lot more ways to get smart than uh, a regimented school system. So we had some advantages in the new South Africa was coming to life, but we had as many possible tribal conflicts. And by the way, tribes are also artificial and cause a lot of our problem. And we named them tribes. We didn't tell the South African folks, your tribes. They were families and communities of people. But as we took over and colonized South Africa, we started to label them. And therefore, they became identified with a tribe. And that was one of the things we helped break down. Get over your, I mean, like all the categorizing and fragmenting we do is really the source of our problem. Yeah. One of the quotes I appreciate from the book was something like fragmentation is the original sin of the mechanistic paradigm, something like that. Yeah, I, I wrote that. I wrote an article that that was the title, Fragmentation's Original Sin. Was it mine or did somebody else do that too? Well, th this was a line that's in indirect work, so I'll track down the article mm. as well. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> One thing I'd love to explore is the utter depth and pervasiveness of, of a mechanistic paradigm of, of indirect work. And I, if, if it's okay, I'll read out a a par yeah. paragraph and it'd be lovely to, to dive into that as it was just so so relevant to what's exciting me at the moment okay and what's going on in the world so you wrote for example every time we try to solve a problem dividing it into its components to understand it better seeking to figure out its causes in order to address them we fall under the spell of classical mechanics every time we translate something into a replicable and therefore scalable procedure or recipe we've stepped into a machine universe this is so pervasive in Western and now global culture that it becomes invisible to us. It can be very difficult to get our minds to shake off this continually reinforced pattern in order to question our fundamental shared beliefs about how the universe works. I love that. And right now I'm doing a lot of work on peeling back the layers within permaculture and realizing how deeply mechanistic uh, yeah. our, our so-called non-mechanistic <laughs> processes are and, and how often the, the things we call design process, for example, are literally recipes, they're procedures, step one, step two, it's, it's predetermined, imposed steps, not to mention that the defining design is about solving problems and all the fragmentation that goes along with that. Is there anything you could say to help get across how deep and pervasive this is? <laughs> Well, think of how many things you know that are often taught to you based on one of a type or four types. For, like there are four types of watersheds. 
you know, I'm sure Mother Earth is, is laughing out loud at us as we think uh, there are only four. Uh, and that could have changed. But a friend of mine who did her master's degree in water uh, shed management said four types. Think about the number of things that there are types of. Now you know something was fragmented. You, that, that's the biggest clue. And you are in almost every professional career you can choose. You are taught in order to be able to diagnose early what the number of um, types are of that so that you can get in quickly, make an assessment, put it in this box. And the minute you've got, the minute you have fragments, which, which uh, types tell you, or steps the same way, we'll, we'll come back to that. You've just told yourself, I'm working in a classical physics mechanistic paradigm, because in living systems, there are no types. There's it only people say what there are, and they can tell you, well, what they're doing is imposing their social construct, and it's so real to them that they can't even conceive of that there is, it's really, as you know, I renamed watersheds life sheds, because it makes it dead. And the minute we have fragmented, we have to now create categories, because fragmentation that goes deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper, and we get it down to the most minuscule thing, and now our mind can't manage it. We've got in the universities a bajillion subjects. And so then we have to create some time a box. Now, the minute we put things in a box, like a life shed, now we have to create uh, some way to know which one's in what. So we draw artificial boundaries, and that's like gender. All right, so somewhere I tr I've tried to find it and have never been able to find where did the idea of gender come from? This is a social construct. Race, uh, we know some of where it came from, which I can't even remember right now. But the minute we've done that and we've created these categories, now we want everything to fit in them. So you can see what I'm doing. I'm jumping from one subject to another that has boxes. Gender, race, uh, types of life sheds, types of personalities, Everywhere you look, you will find a set of fragments, which we now call categories. And so that makes them better. Okay, there's categories. Great. I you know, got it all figured out. And now we can know who fits and how they fit. And when they don't, we have to get lost to force them to fit in their box. And now we have to create uh, generic, some kinds of practices to work with them because they're in a box and we got to keep them in their box. So I just pick any subject and I bet we can find where it's fragmented. I can't, I've never done that game, but we could try it right now. Pick a subject like, are there in permaculture any boxes? All right, let's see. Yeah, let's try it with permaculture. So a lot of permaculture books and some of the canonical ones are organized about, dif about different categories of climate, you know, like temperate, tropical. Right. And people will say to you, but how would you deal with it if you didn't have categories? You can't do everything. Well, the way you deal with it is you start with place and a hole, a child and a hole. You have to start with holes. At first, the real original sin is fragmentation, but what fueled it was we never learned how to see holes, to see things living and alive. So what else, you want to play with permaculture a minute more or? One thing I wanted to um, is one thing I've been struck with recently is so often when we the things we think are real are, are, are fragments. What we're actually talking right. about are fragments, right? Which in times gone by, in indigenous cultures and in a quantum view, it's the whole that's real, and the fragments are abstractions. And somehow that's gone totally upside down. I know. It's, I agree. We can't even see yeah. the whole, and we think we have to get to the whole as an abstract as an abstraction from these fragments that seem to be real. So bizarre how how upended. Well, I know why. Okay. Existence is much easier to deal with because we have been taught that our senses are the only thing that can tell us what's real, or the instruments of our senses, MRIs or X-rays, and. We were never taught when we were young 
how to see a forest. So we have to have some expert who defines the categories of forest or uh, estuaries. There are even categories of estuaries. I don't, I don't know what they are, but I have people who can rattle them off to you. And because we were indoctrinated by the classical physics to deal with the physical world and that our senses, and then behaviorism made it even worse. They say, we don't think there's no thought. There's no such thing as thought. And behavioralism is the most pervasive theory of human psychology. And it's all lies. It's, there's nothing there uh, that's true because it denies that thought is actually preceding the social construct of behaviorism. And so when you do the research to find the parts, you're already created the fragmentation. And once you've done that, you no longer can see what's real. You've defined all of our current social and political contracts require working with things we can see, touch, feel, or measure. And you'll see it's it, even things that say like, if you can't measure it, it's not real. If you can't measure it, you can't make it happen more action. So the indoctrination of simultaneously behaviorism that there's no thought, no thinking, it doesn't matter. It's all environmental, it's all stimulus. And Newtonian, it's all physical. And your senses are the only thing you can trust and the instruments of your senses, you're dead. You're no longer dealing with anything alive. And so that's how we get into the mess we're in and think that what we're seeing is real and we'll argue for it. As there's a guy right now arguing that humans are naturally hierarchical and do better when they're under levels of authority and levels of increased uh, uh, intelligence by higher order. That's kings and queens, right? And popes who sell, tell us we're on top, uh, what's on top. As long as we hold to our senses and we don't learn to examine, we don't believe in thinking. So we can't examine how our social constructs, paradigms, et cetera, are building the world we see. Our, and of course, you know, we our eyes don't actually see anything. They construct things out of pixels. I mean, it's not quite pixels, but like TV, we think we're seeing a screen a picture, but it's pixels. And the pixels put together a picture, our eyes do pretty much the same thing. And our interpretations are based on the construct. So I don't know, I get depressed when I go on this way for not very long. Yeah, yeah, likewise. So maybe we should change direction. <laughs> Coming back to permaculture, you also said we'll come back to steps because the most prominent example of fragmentation and direct work and, and certainly mechanical paradigm or worldview in permaculture is, is in the steps of these right. things we call processes, which are clear. It's very clear to me that they're actually uh, procedures or um, recipes or formula, the, the, the generic, well, actually you could say that the, the, the generic categories, the, the, the steps are, are grouped into uh, observe, like observe the place, observe the people, now design, create a design, and now you stop that, now move over to implement and now evaluate and, right. and so on. And so it's such a clear example. And then we, we, the bizarre thing is that's like when a process is alive and, and beautiful things are happening, we still impose that. I, I, like I see this bizarre phenomena where experienced permaculture designers, what they do is much more alive than that. It's, it's different to that. And yet somehow when they come to talk about it, they suck it back into this falsely fragmented right. model. It, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite, it's quite well, strange. That part is really true also in that things are more alive and dynamic and moving than we can see. But the second thing is true is the Heisenberg principle says you change everything the moment you observe. Everything. Nothing is, and so you're now got this great four steps, right? There are five, however many you listed here. And you, after you observe, you then get a plan. Well, your plan is already out of date because the very thought you had, the observer moves things. Secondly, the minute you design, the system puts in restraint. It puts in, I mean, what the quantum physics says is that there are always forces at work. And so you activate something, it will, by definition, the system need to be restrained, not stopped, but shaped, 
uh, evolved, considered, added to, trying to upgrade, make it fit. And only if you understand that that process is necessary for the whole to grow itself and to create some greater possibility for it, can you have any way of working? And yet the steps you said were all based on uh, an abstract, fragmented observation, which changed even the minute you looked at the system. So the steps don't exist in the living system. Phases exist in the living system, but they're like phases of the moon, you know, tides, things that are moving. They're information for us to try and understand how something works, but not so we can do to it, but so we can create infrastructure, culture, you know, capability to work with it and to be able to engage it, not be the determiners of its outcome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's great. I, I hadn't really considered. I, I want to explore this more myself. That because you create one, you, you you observe, and everything's changing, and then you create this fixed design, this master plan or yeah. blueprint, and then that becomes this activating force that you try and impose right. on the land or the situation, the people as well. And and of course, there's there's restraints because there's no way it can be. Everything's changing every moment. It's like like someone said once. Um, this I think Bill Reed. The moment a plan is finished it's, yeah. it's wrong <laughs> it's obsolete right it's, it's obsolete the, the second right. yeah and so then you get this restraints and of course the direct work attitude is like damn restraints let's just bulldoze them out of the way as opposed right. to let's it'll be to better them. than we are now not yeah. understand no it won't yeah. you're actually disrupting a system trying to do its work with your arrogance and hubris exactly. back off right yeah yeah and and listen to that, and then let that dynamic emerge, which can take you to a third that reconciling possibility, a higher order. Well, yeah, and really let the system reconcile itself, because you could take what you just said and have it be a higher level doing. We now can see what we could have done, we'll do, and we'll do that for it, rather than we'll build its capability. We will use our understanding, increasingly getting better what's going on, and see what does it, does this particular place or this life shed, uh, this uh, uh, mountain range, this uh, even an ocean is a whole, uh, but how is it working? We do not know how to see things working. We know how to see them dissected in the parts and pieces. And indirect work also is about learning to see the world working, not the world labeled. Because the labeling tells you you're mechanical and you're about to do direct work to get the puzzle pieces and the boxes and the right best practices in there. Back off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let me check. I, I, there, was, there was two other paragraphs that I, I thought were just great. Maybe I'll, I'll read those and it'd be great to get your okay. reflections. And then I was, I was also really keen to touch on this, um, this the way in which you use the word resourcing and the topic of resourcing. The, the paragraphs explore the, the similar theme of the pervasiveness of a mechanical paradigm. So you said, earlier I said this book was addressed to well-intentioned people who seek to make the world a better place through the instruments that are available to them, such as business, social activism, or creation of policies and institutions. I also said that most of these efforts are likely to be compromised or fail because they still operate from an old paradigm within which the world is assembled from discrete pieces, each playing its part in a cosmic machine. Our machine-based metaphors are so pervasive that we hardly notice them. Input, output, feedback, leverage, rewiring, reprogramming, metrics, ideal state, and on and on. A living or regenerative paradigm has a very different character and uses correspondingly different metaphors. It starts with an image of the living, dynamic, and unfolding universe in which each entity is endowed with a spark of life and an innate capacity for growth and evolution with regard to how it expresses itself. Working from this paradigm, one doesn't attempt to push the world and its inhabitants to an ideal state. That would be coercive and life-denying. Rather, one encourages and enables living beings to discover and express their innate potential as contributors to living communities. For those of us who truly want to transform the world, it is the regenerative paradigm that will enable us to do so. And then I love how it comes to this question. This confronts us with an important question. Are the underlying beliefs, assumptions, patterns, and language that characterize my culture derived from a machine or a living systems paradigm? If I want to cultivate a living systems culture, what must I do to help with the shift I 
you know, I, I loved it. I recently recorded an episode where I explored this distinction and, and just how easily we reach for mechanical metaphors. Yeah. If, and of course, if we're reaching for mechanical metaphors, we're, we're, source, we're sourcing our efforts in a mechanical worldview. And I, I love how clearly you've pulled that one out, including feedback, which is so ubiquitous these days. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the question was, so what are we to do if this is yeah. how we are? And it seems to me there are three things that can help us. One of them is what I was trying to point to there, which is language shapes us and we can't see that it's shaping us. And so we think the language we're using, as we were saying earlier, is a description of reality, but it's not. Language is always within a social construct. So begin to, uh, I when I first figured this out, like 40 years ago, I started carrying a tape recorder around with me and I would record talks I would do. Uh, it was a little tape recorder, you know, not like the um, phones and stuff nowadays. Um, and I would go home at night and I would actually listen and listen and cry sometimes at how machine-based my language was and my metaphors were. And I first had to teach me, and as you know, from having been in my developmental communities, I stopped people all the time because of their words. And they'll say, well, I meant, well, that's not what you said. Because when you use that word, you can't mean what you're saying you mean. Plus, what you're saying you mean is mechanistic. What? No, no, I'm talking about, and here's the second thing. Stop assuming living systems can be understood by studying nature. That's a big error people make. We are so, first, we have fragmented nature so much, we think trees are a separate thing from biota, from soil, from water, where all of it is in a place in a watershed uh, that is really a life shed. The very nature of our language can help us see what we're doing and how mechanistic we are. So study that, uh, but also come to understand that we're talking about how living systems work, not how nature works. Like I see all the time people citing, um, uh, Janine Bennis, right, or use nature to teach you. Well, that drops out completely how humans are working. And I see people all the time in the ecological world dropping out that most of what's going on, we're talking about creates a problem or our inner social constructs. And one of them is how we see nature. We may have gotten to calling it gardens and things that are less machine-like, but we divide up, we still say leaves, twigs, trunks, uh, um, bark. We still define a tree and its fragments. And that can't teach us anything. And I watch people trying to use biomimicry and they say, how do leaves clean themselves? There's no such thing as how all leaves clean themselves. They're all in the context of a particular kind of tree in a particular kind of place. And if you don't walk in live and fresh in every place and look at it as alive, you can't even get nature into the living systems world. Much less, I mean, if you go try Kat Anderson's idea of tending the wild, you get a lot closer to what it means to be living system because humans played a role in knowing that uh, forests farmed and they had, and animals were a part of a foresting farm, and humans were a part of the tilling mechanisms, but not the way we till with machines. That plants couldn't move themselves when they wanted to become denser because certain kind of things were happening on one side of the forest and moving to the other. Until you can see the system of for, a forest that farms with humans as an instrument in that you aren't beginning to understand living systems. And again, I want all permaculturists to, to really learn what it means to consider place, because mostly they mean place-based, this is where I live, not place source. Uh, you know, Janine is right about, you need to source from something else, but you don't source from nature, you source from life at work. Not one thing teaching the other, but understanding all are working together. So that's the second thing is 
and I've never tried to answer that question out of this book, so it's kind of fun to try and answer my own question. The third thing is the only way you can see a whole is to look at it as essence at work. So every living being has an essence, and that may be uh, a child, it may be uh, material, raw material in the ground, um, it, it may be a certain um, species of animal. And if we can ask what's the essence of that, we skip over and get rid of all our need to fragment. So how many children do you have? I forgot. I got two. And each of them have an essence. But on the days you're upset with them and sending them there to room or whatever you do or you leave, what you're looking at is a fragment that annoys you. You're not looking at the essence. If you could, and I, I run a regenerative parenting community. And one thing I say is any moment you want to punish your child, put you in the corner. And when you put you in the corner, your work there is to say, what is this child aspiring to right now that they don't have the capability and they don't quite know how to do? And the reason they chose me as a parent is because I would ask this question and build the capability. I wouldn't keep fragmenting them. So going to the corner is a good thing, but it's a parent that needs to go to the corner to get back in touch with the essence of, don't you love that? Yeah, that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. So the same thing is true for customers. So I teach people to stop fragmenting their customers and consumers and or even suppliers anywhere, quit fragmenting them by their demographics. That's cutting up the frog and labeling it. So they're 27 years old, single mom, two kids, three jobs, you know, and that's who we're selling to. She's not alive. That's a frog cut up. Uh, if on the other hand, you say, what is this buyer, an individual one, I always start with an individual aspiring to, what are they seeking to make happen? Uh, and if you look at that for seventh generation for the um, baby products, they wanted a, a house that was safe for children and safe for the planet. That's what we realized. Now we have a whole being with values, not a demographic. So the third thing you have to do to answer that question is, get in touch with the essence of any living being and now it will be a whole because it's alive uh and it's in a nested in a system so awesome that was so neat that you hadn't done that before this was live in the moment it was i was figuring it out as we went but <laughs> you know, tomorrow i'll probably answer it differently yeah 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 yeah, I reckon I'll go back through and, and pull out a few few notes and put that in the show notes. It's awesome. Right. Now, to me, you use the word resource in a very non-conventional way, a contrarian way. And I'd love to hear you speak to that and how you use it as a verb and what it means to resource. For this, this really has been lighting me up, realizing this is a thing. It's a thing we can get better at. And it's very much coming from an indirect work quantum place. So yeah, if, 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 I mean, you, you share the Socratic pentad as a framework for defining resourcing, which we're not going to be able to get into too much. No. It'd be lovely to hear about you, Edda. No, moment. and I had so much fun 40 years ago, really learning what Socrates meant. So many people completely misunderstand, so they, they miss the gift that Socrates left us. All right, so resourcing is something I often hyphenate because we all need to have a source for our work. And it's not another human being. Uh, it's not a, uh, an expert. It is a set of ideas and principles and our own essence and the essence of you and what's around us to be the source of what we're doing. And the, I call, you know, instead of place-based, it's place-source. We're sourcing from the place. Sourcing puts the center of attention, the center of work, the center of capacity building, which is what regeneration really is, back in the living entity we're working with. And we come as a humble uh, beginner's mind, you know, from the Buddhist concept, readiness to drop out our ego and our reactivity 
and be fully present. I actually vi visualize or image at work myself opening my heart, opening my mind, uh, and it's all that opens. It, it takes away and holds for a moment because you can't make it go away forever. My ego and my insecurities and all of that stuff. And I come and be with what this being is aspiring to. And you can only do that when you deeply love someone enough to build the capacity not to coach them, not to mentor them, not to train them. All that's billiard ball, right? And it has a hierarchy and the person over here is better and smarter. And the minute you're in a trainer, any of those roles, you've created a hierarchy. Instead, I want to source from where you're going, what you're doing. And I want to do it with a framework between us, which means we're on the same playing field. We know what we're both working through. So I did a little bit of a framework a minute ago on activating, restraining, and reconciling. If you hold all that and you're asking questions, of the other person, they don't know what you're sourcing, you're now in a power position. If you're both working on it, you're now working on you at the same time. We're working on me quieting my mind, quieting my ego, my certainty, I, being here, being willing to say, okay, you just asked a question, let's right now figure this out and see what happens. Uh, that framework, if I can say to you, well, what do you see as the restraints with what you're about to activate, which I do with my CEOs all the time? You're about to activate the following thing. What are the restraints that are going to show up? And we're both working with the same understanding of restraint, which is something that is shaping, something that's upgrading, something that is trying to integrate, not something that's trying to stop us. And between us, we talk about it and we can move to a higher place. So, one of the most important things about resourcing is it's not about you knowing more, fixing them silently, being, I'm a great coach, I'm a great mentor. People are always saying uh, on LinkedIn, uh, we coach people in a position like you to really achieve what they want. I always send back and say, you're full of shit. You have no way of knowing what it is that my capacity, I mean, Mostly nowadays, I don't let myself do that. Well, once in a while, I get really riled up because that paradigm is so pervasive. We have to teach CEOs. If you come be in one of my groups, you hardly ever get an answer. You probably know, notice that, right? Uh, but you're probably likely to get back a suggestion of a framework and maybe a question I'm thinking about, which may or may not work. And if the question doesn't work, it's your responsibility to keep working on it. So, that's the first thing about a resource is uh, it's always uh, about a shared, open, shared framework on based on what you're working on. Uh, it also is working from connecting with your essence. And that's a much bigger conversation to learn how to find your essence because we're so covered up with personality, none of which is essence. Uh, it's all social conditioning. Uh, but getting in touch with and allowing your essence to be present in theirs. Um, the, the last thing I'd say about this for the moment, and there's a lot more in the book, but it's all about evolving capacity. That's the name of regeneration. That's its true meaning. Evolve capacity. Not do for, not do to, not do against, no, no billiard ball things. Build capacity for a system to evolve itself, whether that's a life shed or a business or a market and the consumers that are in there or a parent with uh, our children. All of it is about evolving capacity for consciousness and building infrastructure and um, that allows people to guide themselves, which is how I build help people redesign companies. We don't tell them. All of the, the hierarchies I build are not power ones, but contributions and all the boxes are empty. Everyone fills in the box of what they want to contribute in a business. So that's what you're doing. You're evolving capacity as a resource.
Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Give me a whole kind of fresh angle on so much of my work in the world. And I wanted to share with you, as I reread the book this morning, I printed out a couple of stickers I'm going to stick on my monitor. It's only 110 pages, right? So you can actually read it in the morning. Yeah, and then reread it every morning for... Right, you can months. do that too. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, like you could happily spend a long time on each of the frameworks. But I printed out two stickers because so much of this resourcing is about staying awake and in the moment and alive, yeah. right? So one is what framework is most relevant right now, you know, just to constantly be asking. And then just uh, had another one. Are you and awake? You, by the way, stop a second. You have to have a, a, a situation to be able to answer that. There's no abstract. The framework is right right now. It's who am I about to be working with or what living thing? Okay. What was your thing? Yeah, well, so the idea is while I'm on a call with an actual group or person, that's what okay. I'm at it. And I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, and you and you may have to then change your mind yeah. when you get on because they may be in a different place. And the mechanistic has it in advance, a plan, yeah. and yeah. doesn't notice that their observations moved it. Sorry. Yeah. Do your yeah. second one. <laughs> oh, the second one was was the simple question, are you awake right now? Realizing how incredibly easy it is to fall asleep. So you know, do you know how to do that? That's a lovely question. Do you have any idea how to answer it or what to do? Well, and how would you know? Well, what what I would say at this this point is to do a, a quick observation. And say, is what I'm saying right now something I've said before? You know, am I recycling something I've already said? Am I recycling an old thought? Am I doing something I've already done? That was okay. One, That's a way. good clue. Uh huh. Aside from that, what have you got for me? <laughs> you have to have an aim. Yeah, right. And that yeah. aim is about you working on you. I mean, uh, you know, I remind myself of my essence because I grew up pretty feeling pretty unloved. I had a pretty rotten, by most definition, childhood. And I will fall into that even at the age of 80 in a drop of a hat for feeling unloved or judged or people say something that you can tell they're not approving of me. If I don't have an aim, I'm gone about that fast. So my aim often, it will be relevant to a particular situation. But I often remind myself that my essence and how I was born to do my work was to disrupt certainty. That's my, that's my whole job. And, if, and I believe that I got in line for getting a body 80 years ago, I didn't know how long I'd get to keep it. And hopefully I get to keep it a few more years. But the people who are dividing and deciding which souls got by, and I'm making all this up, who knows whether this exists or not. Uh, all the, the being or the panel or whatever is deciding which soul got a body said, well, what are you going to do that can actually make a real difference in the planetary evolution given what humans' roles are? And I, rem I feel like what I said was certainty is the most deadly thing you can do. You can be sure you're locked in, you're attached, uh, you're identified with, you're making up stories and fabrication. My work is no matter how much people annoy me and I'll be so imperfect at it, I'm going to disrupt certainty. And now I, I can go in. So you have to, that's not your aim, uh, but yeah, well, I, I'll put a link in the show notes to the more, the free morning meeting series you did, which takes people through the process of, of finding an aim. an aim, yeah, which I did. And, and the aim I've, I've been working with most recently, the ongoing one, sometimes I'll have one for today or this session, is an enlivened process. Yeah. That's been so powerful. So, you know, like yeah. right now... If my if my aim is love and process, what can I? What needs to shift? What needs to change? Where and you thinking? have to be fully present to do that. You can't enliven anything if you're 100%. not fully there. Yeah. 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 No, that'd be a great show link and tell people how to get in because it's on Facebook. It's all posted, but you have to ask to join the group and then answer the three questions. I don't ever look at that page. So once in a while, my daughter goes and looks at it and says, Mom, there are 100 people trying to get in. I said, well, they didn't read the thing. It said, I don't ever look at the site. You can get in instantly by joining and then answering the three questions. The name of the site is Journey of Life Facebook group. Yeah, and if you go to carolsanford.com, you'll be able to find a link to the new book and direct work. And I hope we've been able to 
you know, it's kind of, it's frustrating how much is there and what we can do in, in such a short time. Well, I hope you've had some, some tantalizing flavors well, and taste. Let me tell people there will be when they go to carolsanford.com, there will not only be links to more about indirect work. I'm going to, for the first time in my life, see if we can have this launches. I have four, three bestsellers, but we're going to try and launch this when it's an Amazon bestseller. So there'll be a pre-buy that you'll be offered. And there are going to be some various and sundry options for you to get some things like if you buy enough books, you can get an essence reveal from me, but it's a lot of books. So there's some things less where you can end up on a 90-minute conference call with me where I'm going to answer any question that people want to ask. Now, you may not like my answers, but I'm going to be available for 90 minutes and we'll probably do it this time of day or so that I can cover East, West Coast and Deep Pacific. And I'll probably do a separate one that picks up Europe and Africa and Middle East. So come find out what the options are. Uh, if you'll join and play with me and let's see what would happen if we made this a best-selling book. Sounds great. Uh, it occurred to me that that I'd realized this, this an essence reveal with Carol Sanford is on my bucket list. So I better start saving. <laughs> well thanks so much carol it's yeah, it's awesome to have you on the show again and great to dive into that i'm so and i'm so happy that you continue to be so prolific with, yeah, i've already with got book things. seven i've spent oh all gosh. weekend outlining book seven it's called no more gold stars it's in a uh, a deep examination of the impact of the behavioral paradigm on us as a planet as a society uh as parents and why we have to get rid of it equally as much as we do what we're doing to Earth. In fact, if we want to get Earth to work, we got to get rid of the behavioral paradigm. Mm -hmm. So thank you. Awesome. Yeah, I love that flow. No more feedback, no, no more gold stars. And did yeah. you mention you were working on like a um, an autobiography or something like that? Is that a thing? A memoir. A memoir. A memoir. It's called, I am too smart. That's a colloquialism in Texas where when somebody tells you you're not something, you say, I am too. And in my case, I was told repeatedly, I wasn't very smart. So I would say back to my father, I am too smart. And that's the memoir. Awesome. Lots to look forward to. All right, Carol, thank you so much. <laughs>